Welcome to the HS Health Tech Podcast, which covers the latest in health and technology through interviews with disruptive health startups and leaders. So you are listening to one of our first 20 episodes. So first of all, thank you so much for listening. As you can imagine with the podcast, they get more and more popular, which ours certainly did after episode 20. So we started giving proper introductions, long introductions, and we upgraded our equipment and everything like that. So that's why you're hearing from me now, because we're putting this at the start of every one of those first 20 episodes. So I am your host. My name is James Someru. I'm an anesthetics and intensive care doctor by background. So I practiced for five years. I did loads of different jobs in policy and leadership within the UK NHS. I've run two different health tech accelerators to help startups grow, access different markets in the UK and abroad. And now I'm a co-founder of HS and we build, scale and invest in the best health tech startups. So if you want to get in touch with us, then head on over to the description of this podcast. In there, you will find all of the links to our social media, website, emails, etc. So click on those, follow us, let us know what you think of the podcast and feel free to suggest any guests. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. Connect with us. Let us know what you think. Welcome to this week's episode of the HS Podcast. Uh, my name's James. I'm one of the founders of HS. And today I'm joined by Eric Fish. Now, I met Eric a few weeks ago um, when we were speaking at the same event on blockchain in healthcare. And we shared some quite interesting views on uh, blockchain in healthcare. So I was very keen to get him speaking on the podcast today. Um, Eric's from the USA, where he's SVP of Legal Services at the Federation of State Medical Boards. So what that means is he's a regulator. That looks at healthcare trends, particularly how things like artificial intelligence, blockchain and other new technologies will influence the entire industry. And I imagine then trying to keep up from a regulatory point of view. So, Eric, great to have you on board. Um, Thank you. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And I'm glad we could connect again uh, further that conversation that we had in London a few weeks back. I think it's uh, one of the things I took away from that conversation is although we have different countries, different systems, different approaches, uh, there is really a community of people that want to work together to really improve healthcare. And uh, so I welcome the opportunity to, to speak with you all and uh, you know, your audience as they uh, think about what they're going to be doing within healthcare, both in the UK and hopefully growing beyond that. Cool. So, I mean, fascinating career, fascinating work you've done so far. Why don't you start by telling us your story and how you came to be known as, and here's an oxymoron for our listeners, a disruptive regulator. Yeah, so it's it's probably because I don't come from the traditional background of either regulatory law or health law. Um, I don't come from a uh, you know, medical practice. I don't have a, a, a an MD or DO degree. Uh, I come at it really from a uh, person who started his career in politics. Uh, I've worked with... Uh, governors of different states. I'm originally from Illinois outside of Chicago and uh, worked with governors there, worked at the state, federal, and local level. And so for me, I, I've, I view this much as the way that a lot of healthcare is going right now is it's a consumer-driven, public-driven thing. Uh, after my law career, I, or after I got my law degree, uh, starting my law career, I started working for a group that was harmonizing the different state laws around commercial transactions, uh, family law transactions, trust transactions, and it goes to show you that within the U.S., we might have a national approach, but it really is dependent on, on state-level um, laws as well. 
And so from that work, I was, um, <clears throat> I was asked to join the, the team at the Federation of State Medical Boards. The FSMB represents the uh, 50 states uh, and their medical boards. We have 70 medical boards because some of those states have uh, a MD board and a DO board. But the key there is that these states regulate the practice of medicine. So anything related to standards of practice, uh, your licensure, your, your competence, are all done by state law. It's not national law. Uh, working with them, we started, I guess, as you said, becoming disruptive regulators and just thinking differently about how we approached the regulatory system and the regulation of the practice of medicine. Uh, some of this was drawn about by uh, the growth of telemedicine. But I also think, it, at least the way I see it, is that our current approach to regulation and healthcare and technologies is really untenable. We're at a time of uh, confluence of a lot of major changes a lot of change drivers, technology being one of them, but also just social perception of what's acceptable and what they want out of government. Um, uh, and I think some people say this is a time for a healthcare revolution. I would disagree with that in saying this is a time for a healthcare evolution, especially as it relates to regulation. We're not trying to replace a system, but I think we need to evolve to the point where we keep what's good and uh, take away some of the things that are, are really archaic or need to be changed because we can do better. Uh, technology is a great, great user of that GovTech type of technologies, or even just the way we think about things. Uh, so I've I've been coined as a disruptive uh, regulator, disruptive general counsel, um, not the normal approach. I, I see the role of a general counsel, similar to that of a, uh, a midfielder in soccer, where you kind of see everything. I see data contracts, I see policy, I see uh, privacy issues. Uh, and I've kind of started putting these all together and really it led me to think differently about how we approach this. Uh, as, as a friend of mine said, uh, you're sort of like the Stephen Gerrard of lawyers. You can see it all, you can do it all, but you're not really going to be able to do it yet <laughs> uh, and be successful and win that championship. But I hope, uh, I hope that's where I can take at least the American healthcare system in that thinking. I mean, we've got so much to talk about and, you know, it's good to hear that even such a thing called a disruptive regulator can exist when we're talking about healthcare and technology. But taking a step back to begin with, um, in the UK, we have lots of public sector organisations that fit together to form our healthcare system. We've got, you know, the likes of NHS trusts, we've got GP practices that actually treat patients, we've got NHS England, which is our big kind of commissioning organisation of those healthcare services. And in regulation, we've got things like the CQC from a service point of view, we've got the MHRA from a drug point of view, um, as well as organisations like NICE that will set guidance for best practice. How does the system work at kind of a basic level in the USA, just to give us an overview? I think we are equally uh, differentiated in uh, sort of our approach, who governs what, um, and, you know, whose responsibility and jurisdiction uh, falls under different departments. Uh, I think you know, one of the things I learned from, from talking to you all when I was over in the UK is that a lot of Americans have a, a view that the UK is this unified system. It's very easy. It's very uh, clean, something to model. But yet, as we're talking, it seems that we have the same problems uh, across the pond here. And I think a lot of that is because of, of the complex way that the regulation of healthcare has developed. Um, so we have within the U.S. two main regulatory uh, bodies, that being federal law, which is the national law, but also then uh, state law. And federal law really governs the products of medicine and the reimbursement of, of medicine, products and payment, as I say. And state law governs the practice of medicine. So when you bring new technology into, into being, you go to the FDA, 
who regulates the the products of medicine, and they might approve it because they look at uh, they really just uh, look at a, a product and say, is this what you say it is for this purpose? If you meet that test, they'll go ahead and approve it. It may not meet the standards of practice uh, for medicine in the state laws. So it's at times within the U.S., someone says, well, this is an FDA approved product or an FDA approved treatment doesn't mean necessarily it's a, it's a good thing. Uh, I was speaking to a guy who said it's, it's as if you took a pencil and said this pencil is good enough to fix uh, an ear infection if you just stick it in your ear far enough. Well, if you say that and it does do that, uh, the FDA would start regulating that pencil as a medical device. It's not going to meet the standards of practice uh, to stick a pencil in your ear, but that's how we approach it. We've got these two different systems. And I think also then within the U.S., uh, apart from the HHS system, which is the Health and Human Services system where the FDA is, we also have uh, the Office of National Coordinator who talks about technology, health, IT. We have CMSS, which is the uh, the payment system side as it relates to Medicare and Medicaid. You have other secondary regulators. Uh, the U.S. is sort of notorious for having the judicial tort system be a regulator. So this is products liability, medical malpractice. Uh, if you think regulation at the government level is bad, you never want to get to regulation by the court system. It's never going to turn out uh, the way you'd want. But we're also increasingly looking at uh, payment issues being a regulator, especially as it relates to private payments and insurance companies. How you get paid may uh, affect the regulatory system. And then now I think data law is becoming a, a secondary level regulator. What we can do with privacy as it relates to technology and uh, coordination may become regulated not by a federal agency, not by a state agency, but on the common law that, that develops our own data. So we've got all these different factors going in there. And uh, you know, as I said earlier, we're at the time where we're looking at these things differently. We need to rethink what our regulatory system looks like so we can bring in some of these technologies and improve healthcare. It's really interesting. I mean, it, it, it seems a bit like the UK in that there's, you know, there's lots of different organizations that do lots of different things and this, uh, you know, the complexities are there and, and there's much to kind of decode. But just going back slightly, um, sort of explaining the U.S. regulatory approach and, you know, the role of the FDA, it's quite interesting from from our perspective because, you know, us in health tech, we often see big headlines of the FDA approves this, the FDA approves that, you know, lots of VR, AR, digital pills, even just to name a few. The U.K. often feels behind almost so why why do you think that is that we feel that way do, do you think that's accurate do you think that's valid yeah I, I don't think it's it's accurate that anyone is behind um, but i think the fda process especially as of recent is turning into a more innovator friendly process uh commissioner gottlieb who, who took over uh 18 months or so ago has really put a lot of emphasis on innovation and uh improving the process for innovators to get mm. through the regulatory system. So what you might be seeing is some of this technology coming through and all the headlines is that they're finally catching up to where they should have been years ago. They just needed to have somebody driving that. The FDA process is really a risk-based process. So they're looking at ways that as they review products for risk, they can either, I don't want to say take shortcuts, but they can use other factors to look at uh, whether a product is safe or not, or whether it does what it's supposed to do. Uh, you know, I, I have to laugh. The, the FDA approaches software still, or it did for a long time, under definitions that were from the mid-1970s. This is wow. computer software. Uh, they've now just changed this, and they're looking at it a little differently. I'd be happy to talk about that, because I think that's going to be key for a lot of people in innovation. 
Uh, they've got three different classes that they use when they look at risk. Class one type of devices are usually uh, low risk, so they get a very low level of of review. These would be your Q-tips, your tongue depressors, those sort of things. Mm. Cla- class three um, are the high risky uh, products, and that would be uh, pacemakers or things that get implanted into the body very much uh, more tied to a high-risk procedure. I think where most people are going to fall into, uh, at least in the innovation space, if you're not doing, you know, making a new Q-tip or making a new pacemaker, mm-hmm. you're looking at the class two uh, approach, which is this hybrid of technology, data, software. There's some risk there, uh, and there's a process called the five well five ten K process which says if this is something that is already on the market, so like an uh, EKG, if there's already EKG out there, you just have to show up that your new way of doing it through a watch, through a phone, through however, uh, whatever software you're using, is substantially equivalent to that product that's already on the market. It's sort of saying that they're, they're comparable, the risk is there, we know what it is, we can move it forward. I think that's also where software comes in because we're going to start looking at software a little differently mm. uh, in this. So the FDA is really trying to change its approach, uh, and they're to be commended for doing so. Uh, but they have to start uh, looking at how this will affect the other parts of, of the regulatory system as well. So what does this mean then for innovators, I guess, in the U.S., but also in the U.K., when they think about how to get regulated for the U.S. and to get involved in, in these processes? Well, I think uh, one of, the, one of the, the things that innovators need to be thinking about, uh, especially because healthcare is a global issue, especially some of the software is going to be globally uh, deployed, is if you come up with a software type of approach to, to uh, a new product, uh, you have to go through the FDA's process where they're going to regulate you as a, under these old definitions. They now have something uh, that they're they're implementing as at least as a pilot right now, which is called the pre-certification program, where they're looking not so much at the software or the actual code that's being developed, but the quality control, the quality assurance of that company that's developing software. Uh, I think this goes to show that they've recognized that as they innovate, as innovators come out quickly with new iterations of software, new devices, to get it stuck in the regulatory process, which really just says at this one point of time, this software is okay. You can't then use that software, any version two or version three. You have to rely on that. You Version two has to go through this whole process. Mm. What they're saying is, you know, company X is a good developer of software. They do the right consents. They have the right processes in place. Because they are a trusted actor, their software can go forward a lot quicker. They're not looking at the individual code lines. Uh, they've rolled that out now for, I think, about 10 to 15 companies. Um, I know Apple, uh, Johnson & Johnson, some of your big players are, have gotten that, that pre-cert program. Um, I think innovators need to watch how the FDA handles that because it's how they're going to handle the big guys is how they're going to handle the little guys. Mm-hmm. And obviously the resources are very different to cope with that. Yeah, and then in a way, too, I've as much that good that is in this pre-cert program, there's been some commentators that have said this is actually just another form of regulatory capture where uh, your big players are going to get this pre-certification. They've got the resources that show up, you know, how good they are. Mm. And if you continually re- rely on their business process as the shortcut, the the new startup's going to have trouble because you don't have that history to show of, uh, you know, this is how we do business. This is how we're always 
checking all the, the data sets and things. Uh, so they might get held up, even though this certification process is going to exist. So what would be your kind of overall advice for startups that were looking to get into that regulation in the U.S.? Well, I think uh, as it relates to the product, if you have a medical product, uh, I think you, you need to be very, uh, very pleased that the FDA is moving towards a, uh, a an innovator-friendly approach. Uh, the other side of that, though, is that, as I said earlier, just because the product was approved, you also have to look at the state-level practice of medicine standards. And uh, one of the things that we're working here at the FSMB on is to come up with uh, just like some guidelines or just an, uh, an approach to how we deal with technology uh, as, as it moves faster, artificial intelligence and other things. So once the FDA approves something, just so we've got this right, so once the FDA approves something, that is just saying it does what it says it's going to do. Right. It's actually then going down to the state level for which it right. needs another good look and go through another lot of regulation in order to right. actually be used or potentially rolled out, et cetera. Right, yeah. Uh, the state law is really the last mile of this process. Uh, and it could be one that I think oftentimes innovators overlook because they just look for the FDA approval or the right. sort of national standards. But each state handles things a little differently, especially as it relates to the practice of medicine. And so when you do your design thinking, uh, one of the things I've counseled people on that have brought this question to me is think backwards, sort of start with the clinical deployment of, of your process and then work backwards from that because you could put all this investment into getting FDA approval, and it is a long, costly process, and then be thwarted at the clinical delivery point. Uh, and if, if you did, you had to think that your design design thinking in reverse, mm-hmm. say how does the physician use this uh, in practice with the patient? What sort of rules are there? And then from there, work backwards because I think it's easier, a lot easier to build a product than to deploy it. I think that's really interesting because that is almost reminiscent of what we've got in the UK in the. In the the sense that you could, you could get your your service approved by the CQC, but then it would actually fall to the NHS Trust or GP practices to then um, scrutinise it again to actually get adopted on the ground floor and, and get involved in helping staff and patients. So it does seem very similar. Yeah. Uh, you know, for example, one of the things that's probably out there now in both the UK and the US is telemedicine. Uh, telemedicine standards exist, but each state handles telemedicine differently whether it could be video only, whether it has to be video audio, uh, what you do with chatbots or uh, asynchronous technologies, all that is dealt with at the state level. It is not dealt with at the federal level. So in a way, you've got to play 50 different chess matches um, as as you deploy a product. One of the things we've done at the FSMB and working with industry is to come up with national standards that I think cut down on a lot of those differentials. You're still going to have some differences there, but the big differences are going to be solved by common definitions, common approaches to major issues like consent and uh, privacy. There's something that we could definitely learn from in the UK. And I think, you know, there are efforts being made in the center to, to do similar things and come up with these guidelines. But, you know, I've sat with startups in the UK and gone through these same issues of, of you know, even getting under information governance, for example, uh, sorted for one organization which is a long drawn out process it can take mm-hmm. weeks months and then obviously to make a second sale to even a different organization you would then need to go through an entire new set of information governance requirements and getting everything sorted again and it is such a barrier to scale and it's <coughs> a lot of the it reason is. why these why these startups aren't really you know often taking off and 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 be, becoming sustainable yeah and i think that's one of the things that that holds back innovation in healthcare is that people shy away from investment in it 
just because yeah. it is highly regulated. Yeah. Uh, one of the studies that we've looked at here, uh, we had an artificial intelligence summit um, about a month ago with uh, <clears throat> where we brought state regulators and innovators into the same room. <clears throat> Excuse me, not, not necessarily a place where innovators like to go, sit with a bunch <laughs> of regulators. But um, one of the things that we talked about as we talked about clinical deployment is that only 30% or so of funding, VC funding in healthcare related to AI is going into the clinical space. It's all going into the administrative space either before or uh, after you know, payment, or, payment or intake. And uh, I was talking to someone, I was like, why is that? And they said, well, if you're an investor, you don't want to invest in something that's so regulated, you, you don't know what's going to happen mm. to it. So it's a fundamental kind of lack of understanding, I guess, of the space because it is a bit of a black box and it is an unknown. And I think, you know, there's often startups that come to us saying that, you know, they're, they're in one organization, therefore they'll be able to get into the rest. And even we right. say the same things to bring them onto the program, which is you cannot be certain of that. So what are you doing to make that a certainty? Right. Because I'm it's very been, interested in the answers. Well, yeah, especially as it relates to, to new innovations that are clinical. You have to be thinking, and that's why I say design thinking backwards. Yeah. The first question I would ask somebody would be, who regulates this? How is it regulated at the state level? You mm. know, the, the doctor that's licensed, what action are they going to take on his license mm. if he uses this? Uh, if they don't have an answer to that, that would tell me that they haven't thought about this all the way through. It's nice to get the headline. It's nice to get the funding. Yeah. But you're, you're not thinking all the, all the way through to see deployment. And it's even nice to get the FDA approving it, but seemingly that doesn't really count for much when it comes to uh, uh, yeah. It just says you've got a really nice product. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. So, I mean, you mentioned telemedicine as, as one example, but well, what other innovations do you think are necessary? I mean, is, is there a huge market for innovative products in the U.S. at the moment? Oh, for sure. For sure. I think uh, a lot of this is driven by a focus on value and the consumer-centric vision of healthcare delivery. Yeah, um, I've done a lot of thinking about uh, where we are, and this is, gets to why I, you know, I'm not disruptive. I'd say just a thinking regulator is that um, we've got a lot of change going on. And the institutions of regulation that were built really out of the turn of the century in, in both countries need to adapt to provide for the social contract contract that's there between the sort of the patient, the public, the regulators. And uh, we need to think differently about this. There's going to be new products. We want it bigger, faster, quicker. Uh, and they're going to challenge some of our initial assumptions on what it means to be regulated or what sort of regulated values we need to promote really down to uh, fundamental principles of thinking, what are we trying to regulate and why are we doing it? Not so much as layering on another level of paperwork, but maybe uh, re-engineering how the processes. And that's sort of what the FDA has been doing, at least for mm. the product side of it. So what types of innovations do you think are most necessary at the moment? Uh, I, I would say that uh, there needs to be coordination on, on simple things such as taxonomies and definitions, ethical concerns. Uh, I'll give the UK credit on being ahead of the curve on that. Mm. Uh, there's been a lot of work on just AI standards or definitions of data privacy um, and how we approach that. The U.S. data privacy laws are all over the place, and in a way, they're um, they're going to become more regulated. We don't have GDPR, so once you get data, you can do a lot with it. And um, as we change, I think there's going to be a push for some GDPR type of legislation in the U.S. We need to have standards mm -hmm. on on why we're doing this and do it right, so we don't become overly constricted. 
uh, for the innovators that use data. But I would also say um, you know, from the regulatory side, we need to be looking at how we use data, how we can consume it, how we can uh, move the process faster. Uh, one of the things that we've done here at the FSMB is digitize a lot of the credentialing business that we have. And we've cut the cycle time down considerably from when I started here five years ago to where we are right now. Uh, we've cut the cycle time down, I would say, 80% from almost 100 days to just under 20 days now. Is that so you that, can make a decision on more companies quicker, more products quicker? Well, this would, no, this, is, this would be for individual physicians uh, entering clinical practice uh, when they, they prove up their okay. educational their educational credentials and uh, your history, your test scores, your letter of recommendation from everybody mm -hmm. under the sun. Uh, we're getting that process. And really one of the things that we used was DocuSign just to digitize that part of it. Yeah. Cut, cut down a lot of, of process. So we just need to be thinking that way differently. Um, we've even kicked a, around a few pilots around blockchain. Uh, I know it's, I'm not a proponent or opponent right now. I just think it's innovated and it's it would be a disservice to those people that we serve if we didn't look mm. at the potential of that and I, I guess what one thing that again i've seen with startups interfacing with the regulators in the uk is that there's often and this probably was a couple of years ago up until about now that there's always been frustration with how the regulators don't seem to be able to keep up with how they do things to fit what startups are actually doing. I mean, recently we have had the CQC uh, releasing a digital health, um, I guess, regulation document, which makes it easier um, to regulate telehealth and things like that. But how, from your point of view, do regulators keep up? Yeah, I mean, that's the, the million dollar question there. Um, Innovation moves exponentially. Regulation and law moves linearly and with not a high angle. Um, so as we look at how regulators can keep up, I think a lot of it is just getting out there and working alongside the innovators and having a, a two-way conversation. Uh, I think there's a lot of, at least in common language that I've heard, and is that regulation is the problem. Regulation to me is, is really the grease of a market economy. The, it, it's bad when you don't have it, and it's bad when you have too much of it. Your engine's going to seize up or you're going to get oil over you. you got to hit this, this balance. Mm -hmm. um, and as regulators look to become open and get on top of things, you've got to educate yourself. A lot of my education in this has been self-driven, uh, general interest in technologies, but, but also looking at how we can change this because the consumer – now go back to my, my start as you know, working in government – the consumer, the voter, is always going to say, I want this. Why can't, can't I have this? And you have to explain regulation, which is not an easy thing to explain. Mm -hmm. But when you, when you focus it back on it needs to be safe, it needs to be effective, here's what we're doing, they'll say, can we get it faster? Well, we got to cut through some of our own problems, but also look to see where the industry is going because you're going to try to regulate at a point in time and you're not necessarily regulating to where it's going. And I think that needs to change. You need to regulate where it's going. So – Let's talk about something that people might say they want or they might say they don't want. In fact, it can be quite polarizing. So artificial intelligence, from, from your point of view, do we need a separate regulatory approach for artificial intelligence? <laughs> this, was, uh, this is an interesting question because this was what was posed at the end of uh, our AI summit. You know, does AI need a separate, separate uh, regulatory approach? And we saw a difference of opinions. The technologists in the room said yes. You know, we are working with something that is so fundamentally different. It's constantly changing. It can learn on its own. Uh, it, it's outside the normal constructs of uh, 
of regulation as it is now. Uh, but others said this is nothing, especially within medicine. You look at some of the clinical support devices and other things. You're not regulating medicine any differently. You still have to worry about safe and effective care. And if we just say that AI is another tool for the toolbox, we don't need a new separate system. We need to know how that system works. And we need to make sure that physicians that are using it are competent and know what they're doing and can explain it. But that's the same with any technology. So these fundamental principles are still there. I think the jury's still out. And if it does need a separate uh, regulatory system, I think there's aspects of it, especially as it relates to data privacy, consent, uh, the ability of physicians to explain and use it that need to be fleshed out. And we're working, we're starting that work now. But I don't know if it necessarily needs an entirely different system. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things in the U.S. that I think held back telehealth and telemedicine was that telemedicine was seen as something different than medicine. It was something so different that uh, states were issuing separate telemedicine licenses, saying that you're licensed to practice medicine, but if you do it with a telephone, you need to get another, another license. It's something so specific and special. It took us 20 years to get to the point where telemedicine is just medicine, mm -hmm. done, done, done tel uh, telephonically or vi through video. Uh, and getting past getting past that part uh, was a long slog. So I think if we just say this is not anything too different, we've just got different tools, I think it changes the way we regulate. I think the start of the conversation with AI has probably landed it in a few of these problems in that, you know, when AI came out, there was the kind of knee-jerk reaction saying it's going to take our jobs it's, and all these kind of fantastic right. headlines saying all these things. And You're thinking ro you're robots and Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, so exactly. different now. Exactly. No, and, and now the paradigm is shifting and it's... And it seems a lot more kind of accepted that AI will just be part of the team. You know, yeah. it's, it, the data processing power can help us make decisions. It doesn't necessarily need to sit as big brother and start dictating to us what we do. It's just going to be part of the team, right? So in that situation, then perhaps it doesn't need a separate regulation, right? Right. And as it relates to just regulation of the practice of medicine and clinical delivery, we've gone down this path now as we looked at how we regulate team-based approaches to medicine. Uh, you know, who's going to be accountable? In the U.S., it for a long time has always been the physician is number one in, the, in that OR or in that theater and there to be responsible for everything. Mm. Well, now we've got team-based approach where there's a nurse, there's other people in there, and they're all playing a different role. And they should all be held to a standard of common, a common uh, accountability for the patient because that's going to be patient-centered. Mm. AI just might be another factor. Uh, we can maybe use some of the framework around uh, distributing that accountability to using AI. One of the, the things I've heard here out of the American Medical Association is the thought that the accountability for AI and any harm that comes from it may be best attributed to the person who's in the best position to know, but also the best position to change the outcome. And I think those are two different questions uh, that in the theater, you're going to, it could be that the, the nurse or it could be that the, uh, the guy who plugs in the computer is the best to know that I should pull the plug. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, how are we going to deal with that? And that's obviously a, a crass example, but uh, we've got to be thinking differently because healthcare is going to be delivered differently. Well, definitely. And from a regulator's point of view, you, I'm sure you'll ask the question a lot. You know, what happens when AI gets it wrong? Who is responsible? What is responsible? Is anything indeed responsible? Yeah, uh, that's there's a lot of theory now on, on how we create a, a black box and see into that black box. Uh, do we have to regulate the 
program developer who doesn't have a medical degree is just looking at a bunch of data sets. Mm-hmm. The, the, or the other hand is, does a physician need to know how to explain the uh, collection of data and how it's being used and why this outcome came out? These are, these are going to be big questions that uh, in the next year or so we're going to have to really start focusing on because if we don't get it right right now, I don't think any of us, no matter where we are, are going to be able to fully benefit from the potential of AI. And I see great potential in AI. I, I just also see great potential. And if we get it wrong, we'll never be able to recover. What is the critical point that we need to answer these questions? Because these questions are, are being asked and, you know, I sit on enough panels and I get asked mm-hmm. them myself. And we've been banding these questions around now for, I mean, a long time, many months. Um, when do you think we need to absolutely have answers on this? And who, who is best placed to give those answers? I don't think we, we need definitive answers. I think what we need is, a, is just a change in our thinking, which is, really more philosophical question of what it means to deliver care, what it means to be healthy, uh, who, who's in charge of that. Um, and we're seeing that now within the U.S., more patient-centered focus, consumer focus. Uh, that really goes back to you know, some of the changes in institutional thinking that health-related or not are, are happening, and we need to be able to respond to it. So I almost would start at a philosophical point of view of what are we trying to do? Mm. And then it's easier to, to manip- manipulate it uh, once we think of here's our principles. Uh, it's much like any innovator is going to think of first principles. What are we trying to do? Not necessarily here's this cool thing we need to, to sell it. It's what does it actually do? Why are we doing it? Who's our audience? What do they expect? When you think of it that way, this, the answers become much clearer. Um, but also, as, as I think uh, having a conversation, and that's why I welcomed the opportunity to come on this podcast, was to show innovators that – entrepreneurs that regulators are ready to work with you mm. uh, i think for the long time that 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 sense of these are two different camps two different teams uh has been a, been troubling and has created a dialogue once you label somebody as a disruptive or in the way you're never going to change that label in your mind and, mm. and i i really want to change that label because there's so much where a coordinated uh, approach to this is going to be beneficial for the consumer so you mentioned social problems. So on a completely unrelated note, let's talk about blockchain. Um, what's your experience with blockchain in healthcare? Well, we approached it um, at the Federation of State Medical Boards when we did our pilots uh, really as an identity management problem. It's not so much the payment side, and I know it's a lot of it, uh, a lot of focus has been on payments or EHRs. Um, or even pharmaceuticals, but we've approached this as how do we trust the the credentials and the identity and the skills and competencies of this physician who's presenting themselves for licensure, and what sort of information is out there that we can quickly grab to make this determination. And so there, therein lies the promise. Is as you look at it as an identity issue, uh, blockchain has a great potential. Um, I don't think it has as much potential in the payments or other systems just because of the entrenched powers. But identity is fundamental. And it's a principle. So once you say, how do we create trust and identity? Again, going back to that philosophical approach, uh, it, it does have potential. We've done a uh, pilot with a group uh, called Learning Machine, who's actually up through Europe. They're working with, I think, Malta and a few other countries on using it as a government identity system, uh, their approach. And uh, you know, I, I see the U.S. could be using this uh, going forward, at least to uh, manage identity, get, mm. get through a lot of what I would say is the administrative work 
that burns physicians out, you know, having to remember where every place you've been credentialed or every surgery you've ever done. The, pay, the physician shouldn't be focused on that. The physician should be focused on delivering care. So, you know, I, th I see some potential on this. Um, I think one of the things that's held blockchain back is sort of the, the crypto enthusiasm and mm. it's being, and the news cycle being dominated by the price of Bitcoin or who's using it. Is it arms dealers and drug traffickers? Um, you have to look at what the technology represents. And I think it's a different way to thinking about fundamental problems. Mm. It's interesting to hear you describe it as it having potential and this is from someone that's clearly actually implementing it in a pilot i mean that would cause a huge amount of um i guess excitability in the uk when people were in a similar position and they'd be perhaps using a lot more superlatives to describe their work mm -hmm. um we obviously met at the the last blockchain event in london in the uk and there were so many contrasting views and things there and i think we held the same views there that the, at the moment it's unproven and i think we were talking i guess in some circles more about blockchain than, than we are about the problems that are actually being solved and what the solution actually yeah. is it, 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 it seems baffling i guess from right. that's so problem focused. I, I think i think you know oftentimes too with, with the blockchain debate everyone's just throwing out this product they're not thinking about what's actually underneath what you're trying to solve and i think that's where we, we shared at least the same skepticism about some of the things uh, that were being discussed is it might be nice and dandy that you have a coin out there but what are you trying to solve and is it really going to is it something that, that could be solved if we just coordinated a little bit better uh, one of my drivers on thinking of why this could be potentially uh, of benefit is as we've looked at digitizing our own credentialing business uh, we did uh, all sorts of different metrics as we cut the time down. Uh, for example, they'll just say that for every day that we save on credentialing, we put eight full-time employed physicians into the workforce. Over the course of the year where we dropped it 10 days, you're looking at you know, a, a wide number of, of physicians now being able to deliver care. But no matter how good we got with our internal process, 66% of the time that we waited for documents or waiting for that next check to be checked off mm -hmm. that was external and unless we do something that's disruptive to the external problem we could get as good as we want internally we're still going to be waiting so mm -hmm. to the extent that the system is not going to change because everyone's got different opinions of uh you know data ownership or the coordination of it that's where this this has potential is that we're not trying to remake the a problem we're just trying to go somewhere different it's this thing again that, that keeps coming up in a few of our podcasts now that healthcare is not a series of products it's a service and mm -hmm. it's so many different things that fit together and, and yes products can help certain parts of it but actually the whole thing fitting together as a service needs to change and that involves things it also involves people it also involves yes. people's error <laughs> and things like that so I think yep. the, the the people part of this is is the most important because you've got to get the culture of thinking right. You have to get everyone to kind of put their um, their own opinions out there, but not be wedded to who they're representing or what they're representing. Um, you know, there, I see there's a especially within younger uh, physicians, younger regulators, younger uh, policymakers. It's not. We don't really care where you went to school. We don't care what you're thinking about or who you're representing. You want to get the right people in the room and say, "Here's this big problem: delivery of healthcare, health." I mean, that's that. It's as a goal. If we can do health and we focus on it, and we all have this cooperative attitude, 
uh, I think you're going to be much more effective than just throwing technology or, or new products out there. Mm. So is it all hype, blockchain? Jury's uh, uh, still out on that one. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the easy answer to it. I, I think it's, it's overly hyped. I think it needs to mature uh, in, in some ways. Uh, to me, the, the, big, the big benefit may come in, in a few years where the initial hype of type of how rich you can get subside, and we start really looking at the next generation of what were we trying to solve with it? What was good about this? And what will the next iterations look like? It's a way of thinking. It's a way of distributing trust. It's a way of thinking about that fundamental principle. That's where we need to be focused, not necessarily on how rich can I get overnight. I completely agree. And actually, you know, I can sympathize with, with blockchain enthusiasts who are, you know, often trying to crowbar the technology into something in healthcare to solve a problem, you know, genuinely mm-hmm. believing that it can solve so many problems. And I can completely understand, you know, the the mentality to do that because you are I, just trying to solve problems just like anybody else. I think it really is, is the same way that uh, folks looked at AI a few years yeah. ago, 10, 15 years ago. Everyone was very excited about what it could do. There was a lot of hype behind it. Then it went dormant. And then people had to sit back and say, all right, what were we trying to solve? Yeah. And what was this technology? Is it almost the hype is, is before it's technology. And now we're really just seeing the real implementation and the real benefits of AI. But in the mid nineties, it was all we talk about then, you know, late nineties, no one talked about it anymore. And I, I think I we'll, we'll go through, we'll go through, we'll go through that, that same, that same thing with, with blockchain. I totally agree. And I, I look forward to that because as more people understand the technology and they understand the capabilities, even the, the people who are, you know, at the coal face looking at those problems will be able to think, oh, potentially if we do something with blockchain, we can actually solve this. And I think that is going to be an interesting transition because I think then there's going to be, as you say, more mature ideas coming through um, and it can only do good things in, in the future. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's just, you've got to be thinking not really what's in front of you, but know what was behind you, why you did certain things, and then where it could go. And, and being that bridge, uh, I think the, the, you know, our generation could be that bridge to, to the future. So, Eric, the way we normally close out these podcasts is we hand back over to yourself. Um, we normally say that if you've got an ask or um, anything that you'd like to sort of summarize with and close out, then feel free. Otherwise, from our point of view, if you could just hand over with some advice for innovators on the U.S. regulatory system, that would be great. I think uh, they go hand in hand for me. I think one would be that innovators need to move away from the rhetoric that's probably in the U.K., but definitely within the U.S., that regulation is bad and regulators are in the way of your product. Uh, I think oftentimes what's in the way of your product is a bad product. Um, What you need to be thinking about is how it's going to be used. You know, those sort of last mile things that, that I mentioned earlier, start your discussion either as you look for funding or as you look for supporters with that. Show how it's going to be used, you know, how that how that patient, how that uh, individual end user is going to use it and how it gets regulated back from there. If you could draw that line, I think you're going to be much more successful than just creating a, a new technology and uh, uh, you know, throwing it out and trying to solve a problem that doesn't exist. Uh, I think also one of the things I, I could ask just as, we look at this uh, UK, US, or others, is that we all need to be talking nationally and learn from each other uh, as well. I, I think we need to be focused as a global community on some of these issues. Data privacy is one that uh, is important. Data use, consents. Uh, I think there's great potential to AI, uh, but 
where people might be deploying it, where there's sort of a low regulatory burden to get through, could har uh, harm that conversation because the harms that are going to be resulting from bad AI are going to slow up the good ones. So we need to be thinking uh, really about governance models, definitions, appropriateness of uses in certain technologies uh, in certain places. It shouldn't just be a country-specific approach. But, uh, you know, I, I think engage also with, with regulators. Let them know what you're doing and show how you're not changing. You're not being disruptive. You're being innovative or you're being evolutionary, focusing it in that language. I think it's going to be a big, big uh, key.